together with God's people to worship, and uh, we're looking forward to our, our time as we gather around the Word of God here this morning. And uh, I want to invite you to take your Bible and uh, make your way to the book of Isaiah chapter number 6. Isaiah chapter number 6, and we're going to be looking at verse 1 down through verse number 8 as our text for this morning. And uh, the title of the message is, Here Am I, taken right out of the text of what Isaiah says in the latter half. And uh, we're going to look at this text this morning and uh, pray that uh, we would see God clearly and uh, have application for our life as well. But let's begin reading here. Isaiah chapter number 6 and verse number 1. The Word of God says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. And above Him stood the seraphim, Each had six wings, with two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me. For I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with the tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. I love this passage of Scripture. It's probably one of my favorites to read from and also to preach. I've preached it maybe just a couple of times before, but as I was studying afresh in this text, we always learn and glean more that we never saw the first time or even the second time. But I want to bring this by way of application to us as well as we look at Isaiah and how God uses him. You often hear preached that we as Christians should live a life that is fully surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that, friend, is a very true statement. But there are many who wonder why we should live in such a way. After all, isn't my life mine? Isn't life really about me and for me since it's my life? That's typically how a lot of people in this world think. Many people in our world look at us uh, faithful Christians who give of our time and energy and life and uh, money and sacrifice uh, to Jesus. They look at us as a little crazy. Why do they meet every Sunday? Why do they do what they do uh, all in Jesus' name? And if we're not careful, sometimes even we as Christians can forget about the importance of who we are in Christ and why we do what we do for our Lord Jesus Christ. Each of us as Christians have been saved for a purpose, and we have all been called to live chiefly for the glory of God, for the glory of God in this world, whatever avenue God has set before us. And here in our text, we have one of the most glorious scenes in Scriptures, and it's in this glorious scene that a man named Isaiah comes to a point where he, at the end of it, says to the Lord, Here am I. Send me. 
Here am I, send me. Isaiah is surrendering himself to a call God has ushered to him. Why would he do such a thing? Because of what he sees, hears, and knows of the eternal, omnipotent God. What he sees and experiences here drastically impacts his heart and changes him internally. Now, this vision takes place at a pivotal turning point in Judah's history and marks the beginning of a new era in uh, Isaiah's life. The death of Uzziah, as we read in verse 1 of chapter 6, it ends a period of relative strength and prosperity in Judah. The wicked king Ahaz is now going to take rule over Judah, if you look at chapter 7 and verse 1, and his reign will be characterized primarily by war and weakness and, and evil. There will be a great need for a prophet like Isaiah. So this vision gives Isaiah and us a glimpse of the majesty of God's glory. And this vision would transform Isaiah's life and uh, cause him to be used in a very great way. And what we see in this vision, as we read it here, separated from when it took place thousands of years ago, the truth in this vision still cuts to the core of me as I read it. And I pray that this morning, this vision, what we read of God, the exalted Lord, and what His calling is here to Isaiah, I pray that it would impact your hearts here today as well. So notice with me a few things in our notes this morning as to what we see impacts Isaiah to where he comes at the end of the text to say, Here am I, Lord. I'm yours, Lord. I'll be the one, Lord. Notice with me, number one, we see the revelation of God. The revelation of God. And and this chiefly is... Uh, this is the foundation really everything we know as Christians. It is the revelation of God. God revealing Himself to humanity. God revealing Himself to us through the Word of God primarily here. But this vision, understand that Isaiah gets to experience, it is, uh, it is unique. It is something that uh, is a great privilege for him in this text. It, what we find is that the windows of heaven are opened up and he gets to peer into the throne room of God. It is a visible manifestation of the invisible God to Isaiah. I want you to see verse 1 and notice what it says here. Isaiah says this, I saw the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Now pause there for a moment and just consider that prospect of seeing the Lord. Who can see the Lord? Is it possible to see the Lord? Now, we learn from other scriptures that the bare essence of God cannot be viewed by the mortal eyes of men. Just can't. When, God, when Moses had requested of God to see his face, do you remember what God said to Moses? God said to Moses in Exodus 33 and verse 20. But, he said, you cannot see my face. Why? For man shall not see me and live. Live. You understand that if you could peer into the very bare essence of who God is, without any kind of veil, without any kind of uh, of cloaking, uh, of His bare essence in nature, you would fall over dead at the sight of Him. 
Why? Because he is God. Because he's God. Because he's infinite. Because he's holy. You know, Paul wrote to Timothy in, in the New Testament in 1 Timothy 6 and verse 16, Who alone hath immortality, who dwells in, in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. You see what Paul is saying? Dwells in a light no man can approach or, or see. You see, God in his essence is infinitely beyond what man can take in in his natural eye. There was one time as an experiment, the great scientist Isaac Newton, he stared at the image of the sun reflected in a mirror. The brightness burned into his retina and he suffered a temporary blindness. Even after he for three days had hid behind closed shutters, still that bright spot from the sun would not fade from his vision. In his eye, he said, I used all means to divert my imagination from the sun, but if I thought upon it, I presently saw its picture, though I was in the dark. And he says, if he had stared longer at that image of the sun, he might have permanently lost all vision. You see, the chemical receptors that govern our eyesight, they cannot withstand the full force of sunlight. Now, I was told at an early age, don't go outside and stare at the sun. And as a young, rebellious boy, guess what I did? Went outside and stared at the sun. If you stare at the sun, it'll hurt. (laughs) It's not comfortable. You can stare at the moon and its beauty and the stars, but the sun is an overbearing light that will damage your vision. Your, Your natural eyesight cannot just... Keep looking at the sun. It will be damaging to you. Now think of this. God created the light of the sun, which is visible to all. Your eyes cannot even contain the light of the sun. How much more would the light of God's radiant, bare glory absolutely overtake you? Consider this vision Isaiah is having. He says, I saw the Lord. Now, that brings us to think, how then are we understand this that Isaiah says? I saw the Lord. He's looking upon the Lord. We must note further what he says. He saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. Isaiah is seeing a visible manifestation of the exalted Lord, one in which his eyes are able to behold. In other words, God is giving him a vision that is not the bare essence of His glory, but one in which He can sustain. Now, do we have any clue how this transpires? How is it that man sees God? He sees Him through the visible manifestation of God. And who is the visible manifestation of God? He is Jesus. He is Jesus. Now, this is what we find in the Old Testament. There are various manifestations of the Son of God, before He came into the world by way of the virgin birth. Now, we talked about types and shadows and Sunday school pictures that point to Jesus. Then you have also prophecies that speak directly about Jesus. But then you also have in the Old Testament something called a Christophany, which is an actual appearance, a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus before He came into the world by taking on human flesh. And what's interesting here is that we find in the New Testament a connection with the vision Isaiah has here 
to Jesus himself. Go with me in your Bible, if you would, to the book of John, Gospel according to John, and look with me, if you would, at chapter 12, chapter number 12, and we're going to read verse 37 through verse 41 for a moment. John the Apostle here references the vision of Isaiah while quoting while, while quoting this vision of Isaiah, he references this as Christ Jesus himself. Look with me, if you would, at verse 37. Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. You notice this New Testament connection. Two prophecies are quoted by Isaiah here. One from Isaiah 53 and the other from Isaiah 6. And John here references Isaiah as seeing him in his glory. He spoke of him. Who is the him? It is the Lord Jesus himself. And friend, what we find here is that Christ is is manifesting himself in the Old Testament as the Lord God because he is God, he is the Lord, and he is king, and he is the visible manifestation of the invisible God, just as Paul also wrote of Jesus. In Colossians 1.15, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Friend, this exalted Lord is none other than God the Son, pre-incarnate, before He came into the world in human flesh, before He redeemed sinners in His human flesh through death, before He rose from the dead, before He ascended to His messianic throne on high after His resurrection and ascension. But we note that Isaiah sees something specific about the Lord. We notice that he says He is sitting upon what? He is sitting upon a throne, right? He is sitting upon a throne. And what does this reveal to us of this? Lord, who is highly exalted. That is what this point is. Isaiah sees the Lord exalted high. What do we see here? He's on a throne. And what does this reveal to us? That this Lord who is on this throne, that He is the sovereign ruler over all. That He is the one who has absolute control, absolutely sovereign. He's the one in charge. Far above all others. You see, his throne denotes that he reigns and is the sovereign over the world. Now, there are earthly thrones for earthly kings, and those earthly thrones, what do they denote? They show forth a ruler, right? Someone who is supposed to be in charge. Someone who is supposed to be a sovereign and uh, in control and uh, having territory and authority over his land. But you'll notice that this throne... This throne is not in, in, in the world. Its, its throne is not in Jerusalem. It's not in Egypt. It's not in Babylon. It's, it's not in any earthly sphere. Where is this throne that Isaiah sees? This throne is in heaven. This throne is high. This throne is exalted. This 
throne is above all other thrones. Friend, Isaiah is showing us, or he's seeing, the king who is above all earthly kings. The king who reigns supreme over all the rest. We bow to him. He bows to no one. He bows to no one. Psalm chapter 47 verse 8 tells us God reigns over the nations. God sits on His holy throne. If only the world could see and understand and recognize this, that they're not actually in charge. All of our national rulers and kings and presidents and those who think they have so much power, they're always craving power, power, power. Little do they know that they have no power. No power but that which God allows them to have temporarily. And so Isaiah sees the Lord on his throne. He is high and lifted up. He is exalted above all others. There's none who sits as high as he sits. None who are lifted up to where he is. Because there is none that can challenge him. There is none who are like him. As the prophet Isaiah will later write in this same prophetic book from the Lord. He says in Isaiah 46.5, the Lord says to Isaiah, To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Who can compare to this exalted Lord? Who can compare to this King above all? He says again in that chapter, in verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no no other. I am God and there is none like me. God is entirely beside himself. No one, no one being like him or able to challenge him. You see, God makes clear who he is. The God of the Bible is bigger than any other God that man could think up or imagine. You know, man likes to create a lot of different gods. You look at the world religions, man has created a lot of different gods. But you understand the God of the Bible is not a God that man could possibly think up in his imagination. He's not a God that we discover. He's a God that reveals himself because he's the one true eternal God. And friend, this is what Isaiah sees. He sees the one true eternal God who is high above all the others. Isaiah, excuse me, uh, Psalm 113 and verse 4 through 6. The Lord is high above all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? Who is like Him so exalted high? The answer is none. Isaiah also sees in verse 1 that The train of his robe filled the temple. This this train is the seams on the royal garment of Yahweh. This portrays and shows us the overwhelming royalty that our Lord has. That his honor is above all else. Now I could just stop in this one verse and we could just ponder on this all day. But we must move on. We come to the second aspect that we see in the revelation of God. Not only do you see that God is highly exalted, but Isaiah hears that the Lord is holy, holy, holy. That's probably my favorite hymn. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The holiness of God always strikes me. Now come to verse number 2 and look what we find. 
The Bible says above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. Now what is this seraphim? Well, we recognize obviously it is a heavenly being, and they're only mentioned here. The Hebrew word for the seraphim, it signifies the color or burning pain of a bite. It also refers to glowing or burning, the burning one or the glowing one. So, so this, this angelic being seems to be bright and glowing like a fire. Now it's possible if you use your imagination that these two wings being folded, two wings flying, two wings being over his feet, hovering over the top of the throne room of God, might have even appeared like a flame to Isaiah. But what we find with these heavenly beings, they have six wings. Two are covering their face, two are covering their feet, and two are used to fly. So they're flying, they're movement. They're not just floating there. We, there's a movement here that Isaiah sees with them flying. Why are they covering their face and feet? Well, we might speculate somewhat, maybe to cover their eyes from beholding the Holy One. They can hear His commands, but they're not looking upon Him. Why do they cover their feet? Well, feet are often metaphorically used to show the one of life's direction. And you understand that The direction of the angels are always only to follow the Lord's commands. They bow and do His bidding, whatever He says. These heavenly beings, they are acting and posturing themselves in humble adoration before the person who is on the throne. They know who is on the throne. Even a perfect superhuman creature humbles himself before the all-holy God. Before the all-holy God. Now this brings us to what these seraphims say to one another, alright? This, this would have been amazing to visualize and see uh, in your, in, in your, with your own eyes if you're Isaiah. But more importantly is what the seraphim are shouting, what they're proclaiming, what they're uttering. And notice in verse 3, the Bible says that they had uttered, they called one to another. They're calling out one to another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Holy is Him. Holy, holy, holy. What a pronouncement this is. Now, we think about what's being said for a moment. Why not just say holy one time? Isn't that good enough? Now, some speculate that maybe they use this threefold use to reference the Trinity, which is very possible. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all three fully God, three and yet one. Each one of them is holy, holy. Holy. Very possible that could be one way in which it's used. But one thing we know for sure is that the repetition of a word is a way of expressing a superlative or supreme truth in the Hebrew language. What they're doing here is they're expressing something of the absolute highest degree. The absolute highest degree and this highest statement that they're saying is that this omnipotent God, this God upon the throne is that He is holy, holy, holy. What does it mean that God is holy? It means that God is absolutely separate and unique above all creation and above all corruption. 
He is eternally and infinitely perfect, being beside Himself with none to compare with Him. Holiness denotes the perfection of God and the uniqueness of God, that He is beside Himself. He is separate. There's none that contrasts against Him. None. You see, holiness is the essence of God's nature, and God Himself is the supreme revelation of holiness. We see a similar manifestation in the throne room of heaven with the risen Christ now seated upon His throne, His messianic throne that was promised to Him in the Old Testament. In Revelation 4 and verse 8, we get another glimpse into the heavenly scene. And the Bible tells us, and the four living creatures, each of them had six wings. Look familiar? Might be the seraphim. Possibly is, but they're just not named there. Are full of eyes all around and within. At day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is to come. I've read this text a thousand times, but it stuck out to me this time that the utterance of holy, 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 it is an unceasing proclamation by these heavenly beings. They're constantly saying this in heaven. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. How holy our God is, friend. How holy He is. You understand that God declares to His people over and over again that He is holy. And in connection with His holiness, He demands that His people be holy. Separate. Unique from the rest of the world. Because we're called out by the Holy One. Leviticus 20 and verse 26 The Word of God says, You shall be holy to Me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples. You should be Mine. Peter quotes this in the New Testament to the believers and calls on them, Be holy, for I am holy, says the Lord. You see, the holiness of God ought to pierce His people, and it rightly should. In verse number 3, the seraphims continue in their utterance, and they say, The whole earth is full of His glory. Friend, we already know this. Creation itself is a general revelation of God's glory and majesty. You look around all of our creation and the glory of God is seen. He is the designer, the maker, the one who has set it all in order so that mankind is without excuse as to knowing that the Creator put this here. Romans 1 and verse 20, Paul the Apostle wrote and said, For His invisible attributes... Namely, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. There will be no excuses on Judgment Day. For creation itself testifies to the attributes and might of God. We read in verse 4 that as this voice spoke, that the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of Him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. Friend, this revelation that Isaiah is receiving here, it will drastically impact him. And Isaiah isn't even seeing the full unveiled glory of the Almighty. This veiled glory, in a sense, will strike him. Just as it did the Apostle John on the island of Patmos. 
When he saw the glorious radiance of Christ, what was John's reaction? The Bible tells us in Revelation 1 that he fell down as dead at the essence of Jesus. I believe that the character and nature of God, as we meditate and think upon it and read it in the Scripture, it ought to stir your heart, Christian, that He is the sovereign, holy one that is worthy of our worship and our life. Now notice how else the vision affects Isaiah. Not only do we see the revelation of God, that He is highly exalted and that He is holy, 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 we see number two this morning. We see the recognition of grace. There's recognition of grace in this vision. And here's how we see this. The first aspect here is that Isaiah sees the corruption in himself and in his people. He sees the corruption in himself and in his people. Now, if you look at verse 5, he'll say at the end of that, I have, mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. In verse 1, he said, I have seen the Lord. And here's what happens. Do you know what takes place when you get a clear view of God? When you get a clear view of God and His holiness, you then get a clear view of yourself and the world around us. You see the sin, the corruption, the impurity, the evil in your own nature as a human being. Friend, you understand that the infinite holiness of God reveals the exceeding sinfulness of man. Some people think we're too harsh to preach on sin and why it's so bad. You understand the reason that sin is so bad is because God is so holy. His holiness reveals to us how deep our corruption is. R.C. Sproul rightly said, the holiness of God is traumatic to unholy people. And that is true. It is traumatizing if we see His holiness for what it is. We are wretched sinners. And we must see ourselves just as Isaiah sees himself here. Notice the truth, he says in verse 5. Isaiah says this, as he's viewed the Lord in His holiness, in His exalted throne, what is his words in verse 5? He says, I said three words. Woe is me. Woe is me. Woe is me. Why does he say this? He says, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. We might think sins of the lips are some of the most trivial sins, right? But that's what he recognizes. The sins of his lips flow from his heart. And he says, I am lost. The word for lost there it references the idea of being destroyed or ceasing. In light of God's holiness, he sees himself as unworthy of even ceasing, of continuing to be of destruction. And you understand that this is what we must see if we are ever to come to know true and genuine salvation. It's that you and I are worthy of hell. We're worthy of destruction. We're worthy of the full weight of God's wrath. Joseph Stowell rightly said, until we see God in His terrifying size and limitless scope, we will never see ourselves as we really are. Nor will we fully appreciate the fact that He chose to love you and me. 
I look at the holiness of God. And I look at who Joseph Allen is without Christ, without God. And I understand that I am worthy of the full weight of God's wrath. And friend, so are you. This is a universal truth to every human because all of us have sinned against God. We're all worthy of this wrath. Isaiah takes personal accountability for his sin, something we all must do. Job said in light of God and talking with him in Job 40, he said, I am of small account. Shall I answer you? Lay my hand on my mouth. He doesn't view himself as worthy to speak. Peter, when he saw the Lord perform his miracle on the Sea of Galilee, and realizing who Jesus was, Peter says to the Lord Jesus in Luke 5a, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. I'm a sinful man. Friend, when we get a glimpse of God as He reveals Himself, we see ourselves as we are. The reason our world around us thinks all is well between them and God is that they have not known or seen the truth of God's holiness. Everybody you talk to nowadays, oh yes, I'm a Christian. Oh yes, I'm going to heaven. You talk to them about their conversion, it doesn't have anything to do with Scripture. You start to reveal the law of God to them and what sin is and, and, and who they are before God, and man, they get angry they just don't want to hear it. People have no clue how holy God is. And even we as Christians forget how holy He is. You'll notice that Isaiah also sees not just himself, but he recognizes the people around him. He says in verse 5, I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. This opens his eyes to see that his nation is in the depths of darkness and sin and corruption. He sees them differently now. We must also understand that we too dwell in the midst of a world that is full of exceedingly sinful people, corrupt beyond measure. In our nation and in other nations as well. The reason for this is because we all, in, we all begin in the same boat. We're all sinners against the Holy One. Paul rightly says in Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, considering Isaiah's, this God's revelation, we must see that we are undone, that we are unclean. Let us not think that we are good or have some merit before the Holy One. That's the common idea, right? Well, later in the book of Isaiah, Isaiah will write this in reference to his own people as well. But it, the principle applies to all of us. Isaiah 64 and verse number 6. And listen to what he says here. He says, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Do you understand that he says our righteous deeds are polluted? Those things that we think are good are actually not good? Because sin has tainted the very fabric of all that we are. Now notice letter B this morning. We find that Isaiah... What's, what do we see? This recognition of grace. He sees the corruption of himself and his people. But notice that Isaiah, secondly, receives cleansing from the Holy One. In verse 6 through verse 7, what do we read? We read, 
Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. I mean, this is another unique uh, instance which we see uh, these, these seraphim, they go to this altar and they take a burning coal and, and, and take it with tongues from the altar and come touch his lips. Some varying interpretations of the burning coal and uh, the altar come about from this. Some see, see it as the throne of God, the same coals Ezekiel saw in his second vision, Ezekiel 10.2. Others say it may have come from the altar of incense inside the temple. Some say it was taken from the altar of blood sacrifices. But one thing we know is that in the Old Testament, Fire is not really a cleansing agent, but it's most, most likely used as a symbolic agent of God's wrath, His unapproachable holiness in the context of the holy law. This live coal which was brought to Isaiah was fire from the altar. We read in Leviticus 6 and verse 12 and 13 that there was a perpetual fire on the altar that, that, that went beyond symbolizing divine wrath because the altar was a place where the holy God accepted the blood sacrifice for sinners. So in this picture, it holds together the idea of not just His wrath, but atonement, of forgiveness, of cleansing, of propitiation, of satisfaction. All of this is achieved through the substitutionary sacrifice and brought to Isaiah, symbolized in this live coal. Now, regardless of which coals you think these were, here's the principle. The cleansing Isaiah receives here is an act of grace alone. It's an act of grace alone. Because Isaiah could do nothing to merit his own cleansing. Isaiah could do nothing to right himself before the Holy One. He did nothing to earn or merit his forgiveness. It came directly from God. And so when the seraphim touches Isaiah's lips, it symbolically shows us that his guilt was removed. And so the angel tells him, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now, one thing we know is this from Scripture. There is no atonement for sin without the shedding of blood for sin. which is what that coal signifies. Leviticus 17.11 In the law we find the sacrificial system for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls, for it is the blood that makes atonement by, that makes atonement by the life. And understand this today, Christian. If you're a genuine Christian today, you are only forgiven, you are only atoned for through the blood of another, through the blood of the promised Lamb of God, through the blood of Jesus Christ and Him alone. If you claim anything outside of Christ as your salvation, friend, you do not know what true salvation is. True salvation is only in the blood atonement of Jesus on the cross that He accomplished His perfect sinless life. Through His blood atonement, He has justified you from your sin and given you the cleansing that only the Holy One can give. Romans 5 and verse 9, Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, 
much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. You understand this morning that there is no salvation, no atonement outside of Christ's sacrifice. None. And this is what this symbolizes and points us to. Now think of this for a moment. Could there be anything greater given to you than this gift? Could there be anything greater given to you than the forgiveness of your sins? Think of your sins. You can't count them. They're innumerable. And you're accountable for every last one of them. Could there be anything greater than to have all of your sin wiped away? Cleansed and forgiven by the blood of another who did it out of sheer grace. There is nothing better, nothing better that you could possibly have than that. And David rightly wrote in Psalm 103 and verse 12, As far as the east is from the west, does he remove our transgressions from us? Christian, find comfort and joy in this. That your sin is forgiven. Your sin genuinely is forgiven in Christ. Only the Holy One can truly cleanse guilt from sin. Cleansing cannot come from one who is not holy, one who has been tainted with sin. And here we find the Holy One cleansing Isaiah from his sin. And so with the revelation of God, Isaiah comes to see a recognition of grace because he was guilty, but he receives cleansing not from anything he's done, but from the Holy One. And it's this cleansing in God's grace that brings Isaiah to say, here am I. I want to tell you today that the reason I want to live for Christ and use my life for His glory is simply because of His grace towards me as a filthy, wretched sinner. That the Holy One has chosen to save me, called me by His grace, It all hinges upon the blood atonement of Jesus. This should bring us to absolute surrender. Number three, and I'll be quick. I know you're hungry, and I was in there, smelled that food. It's going to be good. We see the request to go. There's a request here to go. Now, understand that Israel's corruption required a prophet. We find that in verse 8. We find that in in the earlier verse where he says that he dwells in a people of unclean lips. But you come to verse 8, and what do we find? I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then then I said, Here am I, send me. We see that God is, is ushering a call. A call to Isaiah with this question, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? The us obviously indicates the Trinity, the triune God. But ponder this fact for a moment, that the high and holy God calls to use weak, sinful creatures in His purposes, such as ourselves. He's calling Isaiah to use him as this vessel. Isaiah would be a prophet to them, declaring the truth they had forsaken and the judgment that would soon to come. We read about his commission later through the chapter. But here's what we want to understand this morning, is that God uses all of His people in some capacity some capacity. Now, we're not all called to be preachers or missionaries, prophets and teachers and such. 
But we must not belittle the fact that I as a Christian am called to be used of God. That I as a Christian am called to declare His glory in whatever avenue of life He has placed before me. Every aspect of your life, it should be to the glory of God. We truly do not grasp the honor and privilege that it is to be used of God. We fail to grasp that. If we grasped it, truly, we would see more people living for God. You see, He uses His people to proclaim the gospel, to show His righteousness, to His judgment, to declare His salvation to their own community, to their country. He uses people to reach the nations with the gospel of Christ. George Stott, many of you may have heard of him, he was a one-legged school teacher from Scotland. And he volunteered to missionary service in China. And when he was asked why he with only one leg thought of going to China, of all places, he said, I do not see those with two legs going. So I must. That began... More than 20 years of missionary work in China. Friend, we have a commission from our Creator, our Holy One. Mark 16, 15, Jesus said to the church, Go to all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. You see, for Isaiah and Israel, there was a real need for someone to serve that nation. Letter B, Isaiah was committed to preach. And here's where we see his surrender. In verse 8, he says, Here am I, send me. You know what the I means? It means him, his self, his body, his life. Isaiah surrenders to God's calling. And Christian, we are all called to surrender to the calling of God in our life. Simply to live the Christian life. To be a living sacrifice. Holy, acceptable unto him, which is our reasonable service. I pray that we would consider the surrender of our life. Do we genuinely surrender our life to Christ day in and day out? There's a song that Christians sing, and it's actually the greatest lie we sing. Can you think of what it might be? I surrender all. We sing it often. But it's often not true of what our life actually is. May it be true. May we be sacrificial. Matthew 16, 24 and 25, Jesus said, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. The Christian life and surrender to Christ, sure, it's not easy, but by all means, it is worth it, Christian. It is worth it. Give yourself to Christ day in and day out. Be of service to Him and glorify Him. And ultimately we know the reason our surrender to Him is because of what He has revealed to us about Him. The revelation of God and the receiving of grace changes us from the inside out. And I'll close with this last quote from Edwards, Jonathan Edwards. He says, There is a spiritual light imparted to the soul by God which is different from anything that is obtained by natural means. It gives us a true sense of the divine excellence of things revealed in the Word of God. That revelation in knowing who God is, what He's done for us, is a call to us to glorify Him day in and day out with our whole life. Here am I, Isaiah says. What about you this morning? Could you say to the Lord, here am I, Lord. 
you've called me out of darkness by your grace to be used for your marvelous glory and purpose. May my life be used for you however you see fit. Let's stand to our feet and we'll have a, a closing hymn this morning. Brother Ron will come and lead us in a song and we'll sing.